Good morning, everybody. How we doing? Yeah. Hey, so um, we are in the middle of this teaching series. You're good, Owen. I'm gonna stay over here. We were gonna do a little redecorating, but not so much now. Um, we're in the middle of this teaching series on the letter that Paul and Timothy and Silas um, wrote to their friends in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, which basically meant, you know, like we have Little Italy in New York City. That's pretty much what Philippi was. It was Little Italy of the day. Everything that happened in Rome more or less happened in Philippi. It was populated by former um, Roman soldiers. And so the customs, the dress, society, the structure, all of it was pretty much the same as it was in Rome. So it's important that as we um, talk about this letter, we read this letter, we think about this letter, we keep, we keep that in mind. Um, I want to get us started with a little bit of, um, with a little bit of Final Jeopardy. I'm going to put up a picture and I want you guys to tell me who is in the picture. Ben, I heard them both, Ben Franklin. Oh, and they, somebody said Samuel Clemens, even his real name. Where'd that come from? Jane. <laughs> Not just Mark Twain, but Samuel Clemens. All right, so here's the thing. <clears throat> ben Franklin, founding father, famous statesman in our country, um, he once made himself a list of qualities that he wanted to develop in himself. And he was making progress. He was doing really well on this list right up until he got to humility. And he, as he worked on humility and he got better at it, he became proud about his humility. That was his struggle with humility. Mark Twain, in a conversation with a friend who was a businessman, um, by reputation he was a ruthless businessman, which means he cut deals however, however he had to. Didn't ma didn't mean matter who, who he hurt. And this businessman says to Twain, he's like, before I die, I mean to make it my goal to travel to the Holy Land and climb to the top of Mount Sinai and read the Ten Commandments aloud. And Twain says, I got a better idea. Why don't you just stay in Boston and keep them? <laughs> so as we, as we move forward, we're going to look at chapter 2 in the letter of Philippians, verses 5 through 11. Um, those ideas of humility and obedience, which I just tried to illustrate, are the, the linchpin to, to those verses, the fulcrum, the crux, the center of it all, right? And I would, um, I could probably make a pretty good case that they could be the center of, of all of our faith and, and scripture. And it's, before you get ahead of yourselves, we're not gonna start with our humility and obedience, yours or mine. It all starts with the humility and the obedience of Jesus Christ. And we have to wrestle with, we have to understand, we have to um, appreciate the humility and obedience of Jesus before we can begin to step into our own. This passage, one of, one of I mean, maybe top two or three of my favorite passages in all of, all of Scripture um, is so vitally important because it tells us who Jesus is. It tells us what he did, what he does. It tells us what the effects of his actions were and are. 
for us and for him and for the cosmos. It, it is so, it's so significant because it, it brings together pieces of the Old Testament, especially um, the book of Isaiah and pieces of the gospel, especially Jesus' own words about himself to, into this beautiful, um, some suggest it was a song, some suggest it was a poem. And that Paul maybe didn't even write it himself, that he may have borrowed it from somebody else and inserted it into the Philippian letter. But it was, it was common knowledge at the time, some think. Um, so it paints a picture of, of human life, of human flourishing that was meant for us that Jesus lived under the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't pull his God card and do the things that he did. He did it as a human. Yes, he was fully God, fully man, but he did it as a human, completely yielded to the Holy Spirit. All right, so let's, let's read these verses. Gil, you're going to um, do these slides for me as I read this. This is Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right. So the first thing I want, you guys should have gotten a handout. The first thing I want us to look at is this poem in its entirety. Because in many parts of scripture, it's not just the words through which God communicates to us, but it's how they're written. It's their form. So we've, over the course of time, when we studied Psalms, even in the Old Testament, when we looked at Noah's story, we talked about this idea of this thing called a chiasm. It's a poetic device. It's a form of parallelism where verses will mirror each other. The first, like in this section, the first verse and the last verse, and then the second verse and the second to last verse, and so on. And more often than not, those verses point to the main idea. So if you guys look at your, um, oops, one too far. If you guys look at your page, and it looks like half an X, right? If you look at the way it's diagrammed, you trace it, it's half an X. That's where the name comes from, chiasm. It's the Greek letter, the Greek letter chi. It's half an X. So we look at verse 6 and verse 11. And the parallelisms, right, they're, they're either words or ideas. Sometimes they're, they're opposites. And we look at this first one. Jesus did not clutch onto the divinity. And at the end, his divinity was acknowledged by all. Jesus bowed before all in service. And then after his death and resurrection, all in, in the future, all will bow before Jesus in submission. Jesus lowered himself, God lifted Jesus up. And then we get to the, the linchpin, right? The, the, the main idea. Jesus expressed ultimate humil humility and ultimate obedience by living 
and dying on the cross. Right, so that's the poem as a whole and how just its structure can, can inform us, can help us understand what scripture was trying to say. So we're gonna, we're gonna go through this. We look at verse five. Last week, Leanne did an amazing job. Um, like, I, I, was, I was with you guys online. I felt like really, really challenged after it was over, after her, her message was over. And then I stopped and like, well, that didn't feel like, that was, I mean, she just did it so creatively. Like the challenge kind of snuck up on me. Um, but it was, but the idea of, of unity amongst a diverse group of people was, is kind of the challenge that was put to us. So this verse is the transition between that, that challenge and how we make that happen. And it's, um, we want to have the same mindset as, as Christ Jesus. And I want to suggest to you two different things that make up that mindset. And we're going to look at two different scriptures to tell us. We want to think about how Jesus thought and what Jesus thought, right? So the how, this is Matthew eleven twenty nine. We don't have to strive to reach out to Jesus. Jesus lowers himself to us. Some translations, it says, I am gentle and lowly, right? Jesus lowers himself. He condescends. Some old-time resources say that Jesus condescends to humanity. That's how he approaches us. That's how he thinks. And it not because he has to, but because he wants to, but because that's who he is. When we come to him in our weakness and we say we need him, he doesn't like roll his eyes and be like, oh, here's Tom again. He's excited to be able to reach me in that minute, to be able to reach you in that minute. And the second piece is what Jesus thinks. The goal of the Christian life is to be with Jesus every minute of every day, right? Some people call it an Emmanuel lifestyle. Emmanuel, Emmanuel means God with us. That verse from Corinthians tells us that we have the mind of Christ. We can think with Jesus. So in any given moment, we can say, Jesus, what do you have for me in this moment? Jesus, what is it that you think about this person who's being a real jerk to me right now? Jesus, what is it that you think about this person who's just got a ton of hurt and loss? Jesus, what is it that you think about this person who we don't agree on a single thing? We can think with Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. Verse 6. So this is the juxtaposition, right? Jesus being in very nature God, he didn't use that to his own advantage. So there's Jesus's way, and then there's our way. Throughout history, Jesus, who had access to everything, took advantage of none of it. We have access to minuscule, and we try to grab at everything. Some, some verses say um, equality with God wasn't something to be grasped, right? Uh, some translations, that picture of grasping on to, to the godliness all the way back to the beginning, right? Adam and Eve, what did they do? They wanted to define right and wrong for themselves. That's one of God's attributes that he doesn't share with us. That's his job. And we see so much of that today, right? We see so much people wanting to define for themselves. Me, define for myself what's, what's right, right and wrong. And in this moment, remember, Philippi's Roman colony, the emperors were set up as like these demigods. They had divinity, or at least that's what they, that's what they told people. And they, 
took their divinity and they used it and abused it. So the juxtaposition of Jesus and how he handled a God nature and what we try to do with the God nature that we want. All right. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. I mentioned the book of Isaiah. This is kind of like first the first callback we see to Isaiah. Specifically, Isaiah is a long book, 66 chapters, chapters 40 through 55. In those 15 chapters are four different, sometimes scholars call them songs, of the servant. And after you read through them all, you realize that, oh my gosh, he's talking about, he's talking about Jesus. But specifically, the reference to this servant who comes to save the people of Israel, who comes to reach out to the Gentiles, everybody outside the people of Israel, and ultimately redeem, reconcile all things to himself. These are things that an ordinary servant could not do. This servant is something, somebody very, very special. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So <clears throat> very rightly so, when we think about Jesus's humility, and we think, um, we, in his sacrifice, we think about the cross, absolutely 100%. But on the way to the cross, we have to remember that his incarnation, right, his taking on human form was a huge act of humility, was a huge sacrifice. I use the phrase a lot that Jesus stepped out of eternity and into time, and he clothed himself in the frailty of, of human flesh, right? Think about whatever ache and pain you might have right now, right? Jesus experienced that. Sweat, bad breath, all of it. <clears throat> That's humility. Like, I, there was a very brief period of time where I thought I was going to have to spend a week at a lakeside cottage with, with no running water and a compostable toilet. Like, I thought that was lowering myself. Like, that's Jesus stepping out of heaven, stepping out of eternity and into time that's humility. That's lowering oneself for the sake of others. All right, so here's, the, here's like the, the center point of the chiasm. By, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the first thing I want to point out is that the, there's a little translation trouble here. Some translations, I think, get this better than others. This NIV is a little bit lacking because it says obedient to death. It makes it sound like death said, okay, Jesus, time to die. That's not what happened. Right. The better translation is Jesus was obedient to the point of death. All the way, Jesus never stopped being obedient until he could not be. He took his last breath. He was obedient all the way to the extreme end. Even death on a cross. So some of the people who came before Paul, some of the Paul's contemporaries in the secular world, people like Cicero, people like Seneca, they write about the cross and how horrible it was, shameful, disgusting. People would do anything to die before they had to go to the cross. Roman citizens could not be put on a cross because it was too horrible a form of, of capital punishment. It was saved for slaves and, and, for, and for foreigners. Um, it, the, I, I, don't, I don't think we can fully grasp the, the shame of the cross, right? naked and alone, brutalized on a cross. Right? That was the point of, of Jesus' obedience. I wanted to share with you a couple of thoughts from a theologian named Tom Wright. 
I'm just going to read these to you. But the decision to become human and to go all the way along the road of obedience, obedience to the divine plan of salvation, which Jesus co-wrote, yes, all the way to the cross, this decision was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really meant to be divine. All right, now this next slide that I'm going to read to you, if you remember nothing else from this morning, please remember this next slide. As you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is, this is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. He is the God of self-giving love. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? And then we start, we turn the corner of the, of the chiasm. Whenever you see the word therefore in biblical literature, pay attention. Because the author is about to connect the things that he just said with the things that are coming up. And it's usually something pretty important. So because Jesus fulfilled the role of image bearer, right? All of humanity is created in the image of God. Jesus is the only one who ever perfectly fulfilled that role. He was the one who came up with the plan along with God the Father, God the Spirit, and then fulfilled the role in this incarnation. Because he fulfilled the divine role, the human role, perfectly. Therefore... God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name. That exalted, the original is actually super exalted, right? It's hyper, I can't pronounce it, but there's a hyper in there, which means like all the way. The name that is above every name. Now, some people debate about what this name is, but from what my friend Norbert tells me and from some of the, the majority of scholars that I look at, this is a phrase that was referred to God's covenant name in the Old Testament Yahweh and New Testament Adonai this is a statement that's saying that Jesus is the one true God Jesus is the one true God alright so the last two verses that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father so again, there's another call back to Isaiah. This one is almost plucked out word for word. Isaiah 45, 23. And this is God saying about himself, I am the one true God. Molech, Ashtoreth, all those other little idols that you guys worship mistakenly, uh-uh. It's me. Right? And Paul ascribes these words to Jesus. Again, the one true God. And this is all-encompassing. Above, on earth, below, angelic, demonic, Satan, every single person who has ever lived, either willingly or unwillingly, they will one day bow the knee to Jesus and say, yes, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Adonai. So, told you we had to start with Jesus, right? We're going to start with Jesus' humility and obedience that takes him all the way to the cross. And not just back to life, right? But exalted to the highest place. The same group of, of um, chapters in Isaiah, I can't remember the reference. God says that I will not share my glory with another, right? But yet here's Jesus, exalted to the highest place with that glory. That can only mean that he and God are one. This passage is so, so critical to our understanding of who, of who Jesus is. 
then we take it and we move on to what we can what we can do with it. I'm not sure if I made up a word here in causation, but it rhymed, and I like the fact that it rhymed. So we're gonna we're gonna keep it. <clears throat> Jesus beat sin and death. He lived the life in relationship with God in perfect humility and perfect obedience. He led the way. He showed us how. He did it first. He opened the door and made it possible. We are no longer held captive to sin, right? We can choose to step out of that cell, that prison cell of sin and follow and follow him. He's the one who caused that to happen, right? Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the cause, right? The effect is the ability for us to grow in, in increasing amounts of humility and obedience, to live with him and like him. Motivation. Jesus did this for me. He, Jesus did this for us. So think back to last week. What were some of the things in that passage that was, we could would definitely be a challenge? To be like-minded, to be selfless, to be of one love, one spirit, one mind, to consider others before you consider yourself. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Right? If Jesus can step out of eternity and into time, and step out of heaven. For me, I can do everything within my power to try to do those things. And then inspiration. So, like, Jesus is Jesus, right? And it's kind of hard, like, okay, we want to, we want to, he's Jesus. But that should, he, remember, he did this in his humanity, right? So we may not do it all, or we may not do it as well as Jesus, but in ever-increasing amounts, we can grow in these things as we give ourselves over to Jesus, as we think with him more, right? Like that Corinthians passage. We can be challenged up. We can grow. We can challenge each other up. We can be inspired to greater levels of humility and obedience. All right, so I made up something else. Ready? The Franklin Twain syndrome. How do we avoid the Franklin Tw Twain syndrome? How do we... How do we know if we're growing in humility and obedience? Let's start with humility. The first one I would suggest is this. Pay attention to how much you listen versus how much you speak. Right? This is both from um, Scripture and from my personal experience. And those moments when I'm letting Jesus do his thing in me, I'm a lot more likely to keep my mouth shut. I'm a lot more likely to not have to make myself look better than I really am. I, I remain curious about what the other person is. Even if they disagree with me, I'll ask more questions. I'll ask follow-up questions. The curiosity and, and listening. Um, the other thing is, uh, your, my desire to keep relationship more important than being right. Right, so if you are tracking with Jesus when it comes to humility, you will place more value on your relationship than on being right. Flip that around a little more harshly might be how much relational damage are you willing to do to prove a point? How badly are you willing to make somebody feel about themselves? That's the kind of the negative flip side of that. I don't like that. Let's go back to the other one. And then the last, the last kind of indicator that can help us gauge 
our humility without becoming proud about it would be what we do with power. All of us in, a, in given situations have power. In John 13, uh, the night before Jesus died, he very famously washed the disciples' feet. And kind of the preamble to that passage, it says that God put all things under Jesus' authority. So he took off his outer garment, put a towel around his waist, and washed the disciples' feet. When you are in a position of power, do you use it to secure the good of others? Or do you use it to secure what you want? Right, so that's humility. And I'm only going to give you one thing for obedience, and it's peace. Do you have a sense of peace? Now I'm going to pause right there for a second. I'm going to say there's lots of things, especially over the last two or three years, that cause chaos in our lives. 100% agree, totally. But the, one of the things, maybe the biggest thing that we have control over is our level of obedience. And God will often do this to me when I'm working on a sermon. He was like, hey, are you reading what you're writing? I'm talking to you. Right? You have an obedience problem right now. And that's why you feel like things are a little bit out of control. That's why your rhythm with me is off. That's why you're worried about money when you don't usually worry about money. That's why you got too much on your plate. And I'm like, all right, I get it. Like, <laughs> and it's not like go back to that that um, humble and the lowly and gentle, gentle and lowly. God never wags a finger at us. When God encourages us to obedience, it's because he wants what's best for us. He's designed life to be lived in a way for our flourishing and for his glory. And when we get outside of that, he hurts for us, right? For those of us who are parents, we watch our kids do stupid things. And you're like, please, I can don't, don't, oh. Right? You can, you can watch them step into those things. There's, there's no finger wagging with God when it comes to obedience. So please don't take that from me like this. We have a tendency to take our prior life experiences, even things from our childhood, right? If we got a, a finger wagged at us a lot when we were children, that's how we tend to hear from God. That's not how God communicates. <clears throat> so we want to avoid the Franklin Twain syndrome. I'm working on a little, you know, TM on that. So don't use it without giving me credit. So this, this comes down to like we have this way that we want to do things, right? We want to make ourselves look like we're more than we are. We want to, um, the, the, the love of power in us is, the, the, the desire for power in us is insatiable. And there's something about having other people do for us that just kind of puffs us up. Right, and we're all guilty of those at not all at the same time, but to one extent or, or another. Jesus' way, as expressed in these verses, is the exact opposite of that. 
he went first he showed the way he led the way and showed us how this life could be lived and true human flourishing is found in humility and obedience humanity's fullest expression of the image of God is found in humility and obedience and God's greatest glory is found in humility and obedience and all of these things are found in Jesus Christ let's pray Jesus, thank you seems um, like such an understatement when it comes to your humility and your obedience that was undertaken for God's glory and for our good. But we are, we are grateful. God, every, every single person can be grateful for that. And God, in this moment, I ask that you would open hearts and minds. That each person here might be able to receive that information. That they are the reason. For Jesus' humility and obedience. And as we respond to that, you are glorified, Lord. God, I ask that you would move in power. Uh, as the band leads us in this next song, whether it be, um, I don't know, Jesus, a word of encouragement, a word of challenge, just a, a, an affirmation, a yup. God, do the things that only you can do in our hearts and minds. Lord Jesus, again, we thank you for your humility and your obedience. And may you make us the kind of people who follow you into those things. Amen.